Well, there's a, a reality that I think we all experience. And that's that when we look at other people, we perceive them as having it more together than we do. And, uh, and that's especially true in the area of family. Look at other people and we see their family and we go, man, they must not have the problems that I have. They must not deal with the struggles that I do. And, and that, that's often a problem in culture, but it is especially a problem at church. See, I grew up the son of a pastor, and so my life revolved around church. And I think many of the people in our church growing up thought that our family was this model, perfect family, that my parents were perfect, that we were all perfect. And how little did they know that was going on behind the scenes? I remember my mom told us this story when we were growing up. Uh, we were older. But she told us that when we were, my brother was very little, he's younger than me, he had a terrible biting problem. He would just bite people. And so every morning, my dad would abandon my mom at home to go get ready at church. And my mom would get us all ready. And, and uh, she'd be driving to church, praying, please, dear Lord Jesus, help Keith not to bite a guest. <laughs> Can you imagine it? You go to a new church on a weekend. You go, to, you go to work the next day. How was your weekend? We tried a new church. Well, how was the new church? Well, the pastor was halfway decent and the music was good. But the pastor's kid bit my kid, not going back. I'm just trying to imagine the Yelp reviews back then. Don't go there. The pastor's kid's a biter. And he may say, I'm kind of picking on my little brother. It's okay. I was a headbutter, and apparently I would headbutt you. Um, my son now has that same problem, which is why parenting is another word for payback. <laughs> but it wasn't just my, my mom or me or my brother. It was my dad. So I'll never forget that there was a day that my dad drove home from church, tired from a long Sunday. He pulls in the driveway. My mom is waiting for him in the driveway. And he gets out and he goes, what? She goes, go back. He goes, why? You left your son at church. <laughs> See, I'd gone over to the phone. It was attached by a cord to the wall. I know it was ancient times, kids. We used to have to actually be attached to the phone. And uh, I called home and my mom said, hi. And I said, hey, this is Scott. And she goes, what's up? I said, I don't know. I'm here. All the doors are locked and it's empty. Can you tell dad to come back and get me? So those are pretty, pretty mild flaws, but in, in our life, they, they felt pretty big. And I just want to encourage you today with an award. I want everybody in here to know that today you're getting an award. And that word is that you're not the worst. <laughs> you may think, man, my family is so messed up. It's so flawed. It's so dysfunctional. But one of the challenges is because we know our flaws... More than we know anybody else's flaws, we think our flaws are worse than everybody else's flaws. And because of that, we think, man, my, my family is the worst. And, and this series is really based on a couple of key ideas that we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking. And the first part is this, that every one of our families is flawed. All of them. Your family my family. And when I use family in this series, I'm not just describing a leave it to beaver, mom, dad, two and a half kids. I feel bad for that half kid every time we mention that, you know, like poor guy um, or girl. You don't really know because you only got half a kid. Um, but, but family is such a wide experience, especially here at a church with four or five generations present, people who are single and married and divorced and widowed. And there's the family that you're born into, and then there's the family that you choose. We often say that our friends are the family that we choose. But every one of our families is flawed. That's only half of it, though. 
Every one of our families is flawed, and it's only through those flaws that we experience God's grace. And so here's, here's, here's the truth of this series, is that you may say, man, I, I wish I was in a different family. I wish I came out of a different family. I wish we had different flaws. But if you want to have an experience with God, if you're here today because you're hungry for God, the only way that you are going to experience His grace is if you need it. If you were unflawed, you would have no need for grace. If you were had never experienced brokenness, you could never experience the joy of God bringing wholeness. And the beauty of the families we come out of and the families we're a part of is that they provide this incredible space for us to experience God's grace. And so I know there's some people who are here today, because I've heard from some of you, that you're nervous about even talking about this. And so I'm so glad that you came to church and that you had the courage to be here. Because maybe for you, even thinking about your family gives you a cold sweat. But I believe there's a lot of hope today and in the next six weeks for what we're going to share. When you walked in, you got a bulletin. There's a, a handout inside of it. I'd encourage you to take some notes. The big idea of today's message is this, that our response to our flaws determines our experience with God. Our response to our flaws determines our experience with God. Now, notice I didn't say our flaws because we all have them. And if you don't have them, your flaw is denial. All of us have flaws, but it's actually our response to those flaws that determine our experience with God. And we're going to see this from the very beginning of the Bible today. This series is going to begin in the very first pages of the Bible. Because when you read through the Bible, one of the things you're going to discover is that there is no model perfect family. From beginning to end, every single family in the Bible is flawed. Sometimes so flawed that it makes you feel better about your family. Like, oh my gosh, man, these people have problems. I feel better about my problems. And so we're going to study these families, not for some sort of, you know, like self-betterment program or feel better about ourselves, but because their flaws give us insight about how God can work in our own. And our response to our flaws determines our experience with God. So today I want to share with you four realities about our flawed families. And here's the first one. Every family is flawed because we all come from the same family. Every family is flawed because we all come from the same family. If you have your Bible today, I'd encourage you to open up to the very beginning to Genesis chapter 3. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis is the easiest book to find. It's the very first one. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read the first experience of a flaw in a family. And it's the story of a couple named Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 1, this is where you read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's the beginning of our family tree. Now you might think about your family tree today because we have all these awesome technologies today. There's Ancestry.com where you can research your family tree. There's 23andMe where you can test your DNA and figure out where you came from. And we often think about our flawed families in terms of the family tree we're a part of, the people that go back to parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. But the truth is, is that we all share a link into a family tree. And it's not this one, it's this one from Genesis 3. That we're all part of the same family that shows to question what God said, to do what he said not to do, and to try to be like God. And what I found fascinating this week, as I was reading through Genesis 3, which for many of you is kind of like, yeah, I've heard it before, Scott, Adam, and Eve, yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes some of us are too familiar with the Bible. We think we know it. And that's the problem. But I'm reading through this passage, and and what God spoke to me, or what he showed me as I was reading it, is is back here in the text, what happens is that the, the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, before your flaws separated you from God in this story, they separated us from each other. See, before Adam and Eve hid from God, they hid from each other. And sin drove a wedge into that very first family. And it's a reminder that our flaws and sins don't just affect our relationship with God. They impact our relationships with each other. It isn't just that sin separates us from God and and creates this distance between us and him. It separates us from each other. The reason why family is so hard is not because your family has some unique flaws that no other family on earth has ever experienced. It's that sin has come into your family like every other family in history, and it's driven a wedge, and so your temptation is to hide from each other. All of us, our temptation is to hide from each other, to protect ourselves, and to stay safe. And if you think, man, I'm the, I'm the only one who gets nervous for the holidays coming up because I have to be around family. No. Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, they hid themselves from each other because of the presence of their sin and their flaws. And that's why every family experiences this reality because we're all part of the same family. That's the first reality. The second one is this, that no family wants to be known for their worst moments. I don't know your family But I'm just going to hazard a guess that if you were trying to decide what you wanted your family to be known for, it would not be your worst moment. I started out this message with a couple stories, but they weren't the stories that I wanted to tell you. But my mom vetoed them. And since it was her birthday this last week, and she watched my kids all last weekend, and because I want to have a good relationship with her, I said, okay, I won't tell your worst stories. Um, and she was like, Scott, I don't even know your church. Why do I want to be known for my worst moments? I said, because it's great sermon material, Mom. <laughs> 
But no family wants to be known for their worst moments. But yet this very first family, the family of Adam and Eve, we don't know them for their highlights. We know them for their failures. Think about it. Oh, Adam and Eve, why do they have to do this to us? You know, We blame them. And it isn't just their, mar- their marital issues. It's their parenting issues. Because if you go to the next chapter in Genesis chapter 4, this is what we read. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We're not told the, the specifics about why God honored Cain's or Abel's offering, but not Cain's. But there was a difference in the offering, and, and God is trying to encourage Cain. But in verse 8 it says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. If you're a parent, you've had a terrible moment of parenting. You know? You've had something you've done. Man, I wish I could take that back. I knew it was going to be a long road of parenting for me when, when Wesley was two weeks old. I'm sitting there watching, watching some TV. He starts crying, and Danny comes in the room. She goes, what did you do? I was texting, and my phone fell out of my hand, and it hit him in the head, and so... Yeah, um, and it's just gone downhill from there. Like, I've just got so many stories I could tell you about things that I've done. But so far, I mean, they're only seven and five. My kids haven't killed each other. But this family did. And it's the only parenting story we know about Adam and Eve. They're known for this very moment. And if you know the rest of the story, if you read on in Genesis 4, you want to know what you discover? And this, for me, it was, again, an insight that I gained in studying for today. That day, there wasn't just a funeral for Abel. There was a funeral for Cain, too. Because Cain ran away. He left. And he never came home. And that day, Adam and Eve lost both of their sons. They never saw either one of them ever again. And I can tell you that God is a God of healing. God is a God who meets us in our pain. But every parent that I know who has lost a child, that leaves a permanent mark. And on the hearts of Adam and Eve, there were two marks. Can you imagine what it felt like that day to watch one of your sons kill the other one and that one run away? And as far as the scriptures tell us, there was never any reconciliation. There was never a homecoming. See, this family is known not for its best moments. They're known for their worst moment. 
And none of us want to be known for our worst moment. And that's what our fear is. If people really discovered the flaws that are present in me and my family, well, then that would be the thing they would talk about more than anything else. And so as a result, what do we do? We hide. We hide and we pull away from people in relationships. We hide and project a picture of ourselves on social media that isn't actually the full picture. We desperately long for connection, but we're terrified of being vulnerable. We want to be known by people, but only up to the point where they can't hurt us and they can't use what we tell them against us. And we project because we're afraid of being known for our worst. I mean, what what do Adam and Eve tell people later? Hey, is this your only child? Because later on they have a son named Seth. Is this your only child? No. Well, what happened? Who wants to tell that story again and again and again? Scriptures tell us that Adam and Eve lived for 900 years. Can you imagine carrying that story with you for centuries? For telling it again for centuries? So this is why from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that these families had problems. These families had challenges. You think your family's messed up? Has there been a murder? Has there been a a child that ran away and never came back because he didn't want to be found out as the murderer? That's why I love the scriptures is that even with the people that we admire and it holds up, it tells us the truth about them. Third reality. We respond to flaws in different ways and not all responses are healthy. See, with these flaws that are there, whether it's the, the, the murder of one son by the other son, a child running away, a, a decision to question God, whatever it is, we end up stumbling into a moment where we are face-to-face with our flaws, and then we have to decide what we're going to do with them. And with our next Bible character, I was trying to think of a way to kind of introduce you to the part of his story that you don't know very well. And today is the start of football season. And so I remembered this iconic moment. I have some friends over here in Cowboys jerseys. This is going to be hard for you, my friends. But this is an iconic moment of what happens when you allow your flaws to cost you success. Watch the screen. Celebration and warmth. I'll give you the rest of it after this play. Fourth down and six. And right. Fumbles. Picked up by Lee. It's a 60-yard run. He's being chased by BB. Watch out. Did he get across? No, they are not. That's going to be a touchback to Buffalo. There's no call yet, though. He has not marked touchdown. It was knocked out of his hands and went out of bounds in the end zone, which would give it to Buffalo at the 20. And look at Lett. If they call out a no touchdown, he's going to dig a hole and crawl out of this place from there. He's going to need a big hole. His name is Leon Lett, and that moment defined his career right there, number 77. He recovers a fumble. He runs 50 yards in the Super Bowl with hundreds of millions of people watching on television. He gets a little bit excited, starts showboating, and Don Beebe, my wife loves this moment because she's a Bills fan. She suffered her whole life because of that. Um, but this is the one good moment for the Bills. BB runs. He's the fastest guy in the NFL at the time. And he taps it out. It goes through the end zone. And as they're showing on here, it's a touchback. 
the ball goes back to the Bills. As I think about this moment right here, I mean, he's literally on the two-yard line when he fumbles it. This moment reminds me of Noah. You say, Noah? Like the, the ark guy? Yeah, yeah. See, see, we know Noah for his success. He was told by God there's a flood that's coming. Rain is going to cover the earth. And mind you, rain has never happened before when God tells him this. And so for 120 years, Noah builds an ark. If you want some context, if today was the day he finished the ark, he would have started it in 1899. It's a long time. He builds the ark for 120 years. All the animals, you know the song, two by two, go in the ark along with him and his kids. Rains come, 40 days and 40 nights. Rain covers the earth. Finally, the waters recede. And then a moment happens that most people have never heard about Noah. But it's his Leon Lett moment in Genesis chapter 9. It says, The sons of Noah went forth from the ark, and they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Like I told you, most of you haven't heard this story because it wasn't on the felt board when you were in Sunday school growing up. Because <laughs> I don't even know how you do a felt board for this picture. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it on both their shoulders, and they walked backwards, and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be of his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant too. Now you may be saying, that's that's quite a reaction to curse the children and grandchildren for this one moment. And there's lots of different uh, theories out there and interpretations about what actually happened with, with Ham and his father. The one that I think is, is really the strongest is that in this culture, you would never see the nakedness of another person outside of a sexual context, especially the patriarch, the leader of the family. And so even though what, what Noah does is, is wrong, is sinful, what Ham does is just as sinful, maybe worse. And so when Noah wakes up and discovers what happened, likely because Ham probably didn't stop with Sham and Japheth. I mean, honestly, if there's somebody who's going to go spread a word about you to to one person, they'll probably tell more than one person. Probably the whole camp knew what Noah had done. And Noah wakes up and he, he curses his son. And for me, it's this powerful reminder, because I grew up, hearing about how great Noah was, how great his faith was, how amazing his testimony was. And it's a reminder for me that in Scripture, we see that every hero is human. Noah, we'll discuss Abraham next week. Um, 
David, adulterer, murderer, pretty terrible father. Peter, denied Jesus, lost his temper and cut a guy's ear off. You know, that's a great moment. Paul, murderer of Christians. I mean, just you run the gamut. Outside of Jesus, every hero in the Bible is flawed. And Scripture doesn't remove those stories. Like, if I was writing the Bible, I would have stopped with leaving the ark and rainbow. I mean, I mean, that's about as good as it gets, you know? But this little story gets inserted there. So that all of us would know that we are just as flawed as the people in this book. Our families are just as broken as the people in this book. And what Noah did was sinful, and what Ham did was shameful, because what he did is he exposed and made light of his father's flaws. And in this story, I think what we see are three different responses to flaws. And you may relate to these when it comes to your flaws, or people you know's flaws. See, one thing you can do with somebody's flaw is you can mock and jeer at it. That's what Ham does. He finds his, his dad drunk, naked and passed out and he decides to mock and jeer at it and man if there has ever been a time where it is easy to mock and jeer at other people's flaws it is today because you know what mocking and jeering does it makes you feel better about yourself when you're consumed with mocking and making fun of somebody else and when it comes to your family you may feel angst and pain and loss for your flaws. But if you spend your time mocking everybody else's, when you finally get back to yours, you feel a little bit better about yourself. The, the next option is shame and fear. And, and it culturally, what, what the two other brothers did was, was honoring and the right thing to do. They put this, this blanket over their shoulders and they back up and they put it over their father. But many of us are doing a, a twisted version of that when it comes to our family's flaws. We're hiding them out of shame and fear. We're hiding our flaws out of shame and fear because we're afraid that if people knew the worst things about us, those would define us, they would judge us, and we would have less worth and value. So there's things happening at home that never make it to church. There are things happening personally that, that never get known publicly. There are things that are happening relationally that nobody ever knows about. Why? Because we feel shame and fear. And as a result, those flaws only continue and their consequences only get worse. There's a third option with our, our flaws. And that's to expose and to heal. Not exposing to, to mock and to jeer, but exposing so it can be cleansed. If you had an injury, the worst thing you could do is cover it and just hope that it gets better. Hope is a great thing, but it's a terrible strategy for life. I'm just going to hope it gets better. And what else are you going to do? Well, you know, our, our, our marriage is in a bad place, but I'm just going to hope it's going to get better. You know, my, my child and our relationship are in a terrible place. What are you going to do? Well, I just hope it's going to get better. And... See, there's a place to cover over a wound, but only after it's been cleansed. Only after it's been dealt with. It, only after it's been prepared to be covered and then allowing the healing process to begin. See, many of us, the challenges is that instead of exposing and healing our wounds, we've tried to keep them secret, hoping they're going to go away. 
And as we've learned at Cornerstone over and over again, what cannot be named cannot be healed. And so until you come to the place where you're willing to acknowledge and name the flaw that is present in you and your family, however your family is constituted, that flaw will never be healed. If you were here during the movie series, this was the message of the very first movie, Black Panther. There was a flaw in that family. There was actually a murder in that family. And it took somebody exposing it and confessing it and naming it in order for it to be healed. Part of our DNA as a church is that we don't run from our brokenness, we embrace it. One of the challenges of being a pastor is I've had to come to terms with the fact that people don't listen and read what I write and say as much as I, much as I would like. Like in your bulletin, which we spend time and money on every week, there's some words in there that I think some of you have never read. If you have your bulletin, you can open them up right now. And in the bottom left-hand corner, there's some words. If you didn't get one when you walked in, I'm going to put them on the screen right here. The bottom left-hand corner says who we are. Cornerstone isn't a gathering of perfect people. We're simply a community of broken and needy people desperate to experience God's power. You're sitting amongst hundreds of flawed people today. This may be the most broken collective of people in Prescott today. Which is why I've never gotten what people say, I don't come to church because of the hypocrites. And I come to church because I'm broken and messed up and I need help. I need encouragement. And, and if you want to go to a church where you're not encouraged to embrace your brokenness, if you want to go to a church where you're encouraged to put on a show, if you want to go to a church where everybody shows up in their Sunday best and smiles and nods the whole time, this is going to be a tough place for you to be. Because we are a community of broken people, not perfect people. And the most broken person is the guy you're looking at right now. And if you don't believe that you're even more broken than I am, we're not even having an honest conversation yet. We're not a gathering of perfect people. We're a gathering of broken and perfect people who are desperate to experience God's power and God's grace in our brokenness. And the more and more we get comfortable with embracing and accepting and naming and facing our flaws and our brokenness, the more we will experience God's power. Because the opposite is also true. The less we face our flaws, the less we face our brokenness, the less we confess our sin, the less we confess and believe that I'm actually the most sinful person in this room, the less we will need God because the more we'll think we have it together. You should actually think you're more sinful, not less, the longer you follow Jesus. You should actually think you're more broken than you were the day you met Jesus. Why? Because you realize more of that brokenness and you realize more of that sin in light of who God is and who he's showing you that you are. And that's why we're a gathering of broken people because we've come to experience the goodness of God and we know that we're nothing like him. But guess what? The good news is while we were still sinful, flawed, broken people, Christ died for us. So if this is going to be a place you're going to call home, then get ready to talk about your flaws and your brokenness a lot because those are the places that we can encounter God in the greatest way. Reality number four, because of Jesus, honesty is encouraged and wholeness is possible. 
It isn't just about our brokenness. It's about what Jesus does in the midst of that and about how great he is there. See, because of Jesus, honesty is encouraged and wholeness is possible. In the book of Romans, this is what we read. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's what Adam and Eve did, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Or as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, what Jesus did, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. What that means is that once God gave the law, it actually showed us how broken we were because we realized we couldn't keep it. But the good news is where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more you realize you're sinful, the more you realize your need for God's grace. And so Paul says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so the good news is this. You may be a flawed, sinful, broken person more than you realize today. Your family may be worse than you realize today. But the good news is, even though you were once part of a family tree that went back to Adam, you can be grafted into a new family tree where Jesus is the head. And the brokenness and the flaw that has defined your family can turn into a place where something is made whole and complete and transformed. That's, that's the good news what Jesus does. He invites us to bring our brokenness so he can make it whole. He invites us to bring our flaw so he can meet it with his grace. And that's what this series is going to be about. It's going to be about us us looking at the flaws in ourselves and in our families and saying, how is that a place that God wants to transform? And it's not done there. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says this. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us enter then with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Some of you grew up with this idea that you couldn't have honest conversations in your house. Maybe you couldn't have honest conversations with your parents or honest conversations with your father. But your heavenly father is not like your earthly father. What Jesus does is he invites us to bring all of our flaws, all of our brokenness, all of our weakness into his presence. Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it isn't, man, I'm screwed up. I can't tell my heavenly father. No, it's I'm so screwed up, I can run to my Heavenly Father. And some of us, we have been running from our flaws and the flaws of our family for decades. And as a result, we've been running from God. And you will find God's mercy and God's grace the moment you turn around and you're ready to own the truth. You may have come from a broken family, but I want you to know you're invited to join a family that's being made whole. And so over the next five, six weeks, we're going to discuss these flawed families we're a part of. 
We're going to talk about what does it mean to trust God's plan over our own? What does it mean to, to deal with the agendas in our family? What does it mean to deal with the dysfunction that we inherited and are in a pattern of when it comes to our parents? We're going to talk about what happens when, when work and family are at odds and how do you navigate that? And then we're going to talk about what happens when you ignore the problems in your family. And we're going to do that not just on our own. We're going to do that in the context of groups. In the bulletin today, there's an insert. It's got a number of people's faces on it. And we're launching new community groups today. And there's some of you that have been coming to Cornerstone for a while, and you're not connected in a group. And I just would strongly encourage you that you're not going to become the person God wants you to become isolated on your own. The temptation that Adam and Eve faced to hide from one another is still alive and beating today. And I want to encourage some of you who are not connected in a group today to walk out the doors and go out on the front patio and talk to some of the people that are high top tables out there who are launching new community groups today. These groups aren't perfect, but they are the place where God takes what we talk about on Sunday and he presses it into real life and where you have real community and real accountability and real application. I know some of you have come from other churches that that did Bible studies and not community group. There's nothing wrong with studying the Bible. I mean, I've loved being in Genesis this week. But if I'm honest, sometimes in church, we use Bible studies as a way to avoid real conversations. I show up at a Bible study. I listen to the guy with all the answers talk. I take notes and I go home. And nobody has to know me. We're on my dinner table on Friday night in my community group. Things got real. I brought up how have our families impacted the way we love God with our emotions. And man, it was a heck of a conversation. And, and if you're going to be around my dinner table on Friday night in my community group, you're, you're going to be honest. Because my group knows I love the awkward silence. And if you're sitting there and not talking, give it 30, 40 minutes, I'm going to go, okay, Dave, what do you think? So we do community groups. In those contexts, yeah, we study the Bible. But we challenge you to check in and to be real. And there's some of you who come to Cornerstone and you arrive late and you leave early. And you're anonymous. And maybe there's a reason for that. That's cool. But I want to invite you to be known. I want to invite you to be seen. Because if nobody knows and sees you, nobody can really love you. And we live in a world today where our desires are at odds. We want to be seen and known and loved without being vulnerable. We want to be connected without losing our freedom. We want to have community when we want to show up and when it's convenient. And life just doesn't work that way. And some of us are scared of being in a community group because it looks like, looks like, looks like a family. Well, that's a family. <laughs> I know what family is. I'm not doing that. But what if God used the very thing that was the source of brokenness in your life to be the source of healing? What if God did the work to transform and make whole what was once the place that actually caused the brokenness. 
And what if our flaws were the place where we saw God's power change everything? On the back of your hand, there's some next steps that I want to encourage you to take this week. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to name the flaws in you and your family which trip you up the most. What are the things that end up causing you to stumble the most, struggle the most, and hold you back the most? Remember, because what cannot be named cannot be healed. So name those things. What are those flaws that trip you up the most? Number two, identify your typical pattern of response to those flaws. What have you been doing with those flaws? Have you been mocking and jeering other people's flaws? Have you been hiding those flaws out of shame and fear? Have you been trying to expose those and allow God to heal those? I mean, I only gave three options. There's, there's probably more. We're all creative with our flaws. You probably have other responses. But what do you typically do when you actually bump up against one of those flaws? Number three, I want you to read Lamentations 3, 19 to 24 each morning and confess those flaws before God. You say, Scott, why Lamentations 3? Let me read it to you this morning. The writer Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and gall. Summary, flaws. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The reason why that verse has encouraged so many of us is we go, man, new mercies each morning. That just sounds so good. There's a twist to this verse. The reason you need new mercy every morning, the reason I need new mercy every morning, is guess what? You wake up to what I wake up to. More problems. More challenges more flaws, and more struggles. And as you're honest with that before God, God says, yep, and that's where I'm going to give you new mercy. The more honest you can get, the more mercy I'll give you. The more brokenness you find, the more forgiveness I'll bring. The more needs you discover, the more you'll have my power. So begin each day by reading that and confessing that. And then number four, I'd encourage you to join a group today or commit to consistently attend your group this fall. There's some of you that are involved in a group, but you only go when it works for your schedule. And then you get the fruit of that choice. Man, I'm I'm so isolated. I'm so lonely. I don't have any friends. Well, that's because it hasn't been important. It hasn't been a priority. Community is a process, and it takes time and patience and perseverance. I love my group. We're not perfect. But for two and a half years, you've been sitting around my kitchen table on Friday nights. And what I see is change that only God can do. Because if I had a time machine, we could go back to the spring of 2017. And I could show you those people. And I could show you the conversation we had Friday night. Only God. We have more flaws than any group at our church. This series is going to be hard because we all have family stuff. Some of it even happened this week for our group. But guess what? God is meeting us in our flaws. And the way that we're responding to him is determining our experience of him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www 
PrescottCornerstone.com.